This episode is sponsored by Pediatrics On Call, the new podcast from the American Academy of Pediatrics. Each week, hear the latest news on children's health with advice and tips for doctors and parents alike. Subscribe to Pediatrics On Call and visit aap.org slash on call. Continuing education credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. Check out cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information. The Cribsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and informational purposes only. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host. All right, guys. Yay! Here we go. We're back Woo-hoo. with a new episode of the Cribsiders. We've uh, only been recording for an hour. We, yeah, Dude. but it's new for everyone else. It's new for you, listener, in your car or wherever else you listen to podcasts. <laughs> I hope that smells it smells lovely, what you're cooking right now. Uh, uh, we are joined tonight by an outstanding guest, Dr. Audrey Tremulet, to discuss Miss C disease. But we're also joined by an outstanding producer, Dr. Nicholas Lee, who we're very excited to have on. Hey, Nick, welcome to the show. Thanks. It's great to be here. Excited to have you. Hey, Chris, quick question for you. Yeah. What is it that we do on this show? Well, I'm glad you asked. Well, we're the Pediatric Medicine Podcast. We interview leading experts in the fields to bring you clinical pearls, practice changing knowledge, and answer lingering questions about core topics in pediatric medicine. Nick, do you want to tell us a little bit about our guest? I'd love to. We have a fantastic conversation with our guest, Dr. Tremolay, today. Dr. Tremolay is a professor of pediatrics at the University of California, San Diego. She's a pediatric infectious disease specialist and associate director of the Kawasaki Disease Research Center at UC San Diego and Rady Children's Hospital in San Diego. As such, she follows nearly 2,000 children with Kawasaki disease, the most common cause of acquired heart disease in children. Her research focuses on developing tests to diagnose Kawasaki disease and treatments to care for children with this illness. Most recently, with the COVID-19 pandemic, she has put her expertise to use by caring for children with the newly discovered illness of multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children, which affects some children about a month after being exposed to SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19 illness. Today, Dr. Tremolay teaches us about diagnostic approach to MIS-C, the most important labs in presenting symptoms, guidance on treatment decisions, and how health disparities exist within this new syndrome. So without further ado, let's get to it. I would like to formally welcome you to the show. We are so excited to have you um, talking about MISC, which I think is how it's pronounced. It's going to be my first question, but we're so excited to have you on this on this very hot topic. So, so welcome to the show and thank you for being here. And thank you for the invitation. I really appreciate it. Thank you. One of the first things we always have our guests do is to introduce themselves typically using like a medical one-liner like you would a patient in a hospital. Can you introduce yourself and give us a medical one-liner about Dr. Tremulay? I'm Audrey Tremulay. I'm a pediatric infectious disease physician um, at the University of California, San Diego and Rady Children's Hospital. And I care mostly for children with Kawasaki disease. Now, Dr. Tremulay, is is it okay um, if we call you by Audrey during the discussion? Excellent. Absolutely. Thank you. So my my first question um, is... What is your favorite failure and what did you learn from it? This goes back to high school, actually. And it has to go back to, I was one of those people that loved doing science fairs. I don't know if anybody here relates to that, but I was a science fair nerd. Yeah. 
Lucy raised his hands. Yeah. And for me, probably the most important thing there was actually not winning. And that was a really important time. And then the thing to, you know, to add salt to the wound was that when I got to college in my dorm was the person that had actually won first prize in the chemistry uh-huh. section that I was in <laughs> living oh. down the hall from me. I mean, that was kind of college, right? Where you realize that, you know, everybody else is just as good, maybe better. And I had to learn really quickly to just be comfortable with myself, even though I wasn't the best. Yeah. Being in college surrounded by people better than you is definitely a true story for Chris. Uh, yeah. Chris, definitely, Chris definitely had that. Well, so true. I, I went to University of Chicago and I was easily the bottom half of my class. So yeah, yeah, it was it was a learning experience, both in the chemistry arena of the science fair. And then you I got to college and yeah, that was that was a doozy. <laughs> uh, as a resident and a learner, I just like to ask people, what's the best advice that you've ever received as a learner? The best advice in terms of being a learner and and oh gosh, it's to me it gets back to how I just generally practice medicine, which is that this is a team sport and you do this in a team approach that every patient doesn't matter who you see, it's multidisciplinary, that it's a whole team taking care of that patient and that you have to be humble enough and willing to listen to everyone on the team, no matter who that is. It's a great piece of advice. Thank you for sharing. Before we dive into our first case, I, in avoiding making a complete fool out of myself, the topic that we're going to talk about is a hot topic that everyone is talking about. What's it called? Is it MISC? Is it MISC? Is it PIMS TS? Okay. Is it this yeah. is this is Shakespeare. What's in a name? I mean, Ooh. you know, we we just this is what I always say. You have to get back to your Shakespeare with this one. So um, here in the U.S., we call it. So it's multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children, right? So MISC. Most people will say MISC, but if you're on the East Coast, they call it MISC, all right? Mm. But then in the rest of the world, in the UK, where it was first described, and in Italy, they call it PIMS, Pediatric Inflammatory Multisystem Syndrome. And I work a lot in Latin America as a native Spanish speaker and had the pleasure of working with um, colleagues throughout Latin America. And it's much easier to say PIMS in Spanish than MISC. So we'll call it Miss C for this, but what's in a name? Miss C, nice. PIMS is a type of alcohol in Europe, isn't it? Is that well, correct? So that's, yes, and I actually <laughs> thought, so when this initially got, and, and actually my first paper with this disease is, is actually has PIMS in the title, and I thought it would be super cool that if you diagnose someone with this disease, or if we're, let's say I'm collaborating with someone, and I'm very happy with the work they've done, I want it to stay as PIMS because I wanted to send them a bottle of PIMS. Yeah. I mean, what better better thing to thank them with than to send them a bottle named after the disease they're caring for. But the CDC changed that. So, you know, to all my CDC colleagues who I love and adore, but they just didn't think about the part with the alcohol. So Uh, CDC being a buzzkill. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) literally. Quite literally. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let's dive into the case. Sure. We have our first cases from Cashlack Children's. We have a nine-year-old boy. He presents to the Cashlack Children's primary care doctor with about six days of fever and some diarrhea. He's borderline tachycardic, but vital signs are otherwise stable. 
His dad states that he had a cold about a month ago, but had otherwise been doing well. They have been quarantined except to visit family. What's going through your mind in this world right now when you hear about this patient and kind of what else in terms of the history would you would you like to know? I This is like the daily call. And so everyone's wondering, does this patient have an acute gastroenteritis? You know, they've had fever for a few days. Is it an early Kawasaki patient? Was this illness a month ago related all to the COVID-19 pandemic? And, you know, is it in that rare group of patients that are going to have Miss C? And then the list just goes on and on from there. So that's part of the complexity of Miss C is that it's along the lines of uh, so many other diseases that we see that, again, it's a team sport and we have to all be in there together trying to figure out what these patients have. And so for a patient like this that has these kind of nonspecific um, symptoms, when would you recommend pulling the trigger to kind of do a further workup? When should we be getting inflammatory markers, ESR, CRP, D-dimer, ferritin, troponins? Well, I think we have to keep in mind that what we have to lean back on in medicine is examining the patient and taking the history. And a sick kid is a sick kid, no matter what, right? So in the end, whatever your differential is, whatever your diagnosis is, if you're worried the child is ill, then that to me is the trigger for doing more of a workup. So I don't think it changes with with having Miss C on the differential. I think it just broadens our differential a bit more but I think it's still the same criteria as always of just making sure that you, you know you can identify a sick child, right? That's number one, two, and three of being a pediatrician. Walk in the room, is a kid happy or not? Things that kind of make you a little bit more concerned is, you know, is this the first visit and it's the first day of fever in an otherwise well-appearing kid? Or is this multiple days of fever in a child that's ill-appearing? And all in our local communities are starting to understand what are the hotbeds of coronavirus. So are we in an area that doesn't really have a lot of coronavirus? Or are we in a hotbed that is a highly endemic area where, you know, they've been, we've had coronavirus long enough now where if that's true, then Missy is on the list because you've at least had coronavirus around for at least a month. And so since this happens about a month later you know, you, that's when you start, decide to pull the trigger. Maybe along that, I got a clinic call from another provider. I was on service and they had the question of, they had this patient with five or six days of fever. They were 15 years old. He had gotten labs and the patient's ESR and, and CRP are very elevated, but otherwise no Kawasaki-like symptoms at this point, you know, and just, again, nonspecific viral symptoms, but with very elevated inflammatory markers, but otherwise not this sick-appearing child that you describe. Does that push us more towards doing a little bit more of a workup or any issue like that? Once you decide to pull the trigger on labs, I think you have to pay attention to them. <laughs> I think that you do things in medicine because you're going to react to whatever results you got. If you weren't going to react to it, maybe you shouldn't have gotten the lab in the first place. Our trigger points that once you pull the trigger on a patient, you say, I'm going to actually do labs in this patient. What you're looking for and what seems to be something that we're definitely seeing is you're going to be seeing high inflammation. And it's really actually the CRP that is very telling in a lot of these kids. So we get CRPs all the time in patients, but to really see more than on a milligrams per deciliter, like more than 10 milligrams per deciliter, or if you're 
you know, if you're normal, it's milligrams per liter, your units more than a hundred milligrams per liter, that that's a problem. And that's where you start to really think more about this disease. They also, with the MISC patients, you know, we see some anemia, but then we also see some thrombocytopenia in some of the sicker patients. And so our triage point is very center dependent. But for example, here, what we've told our emergency room is, you know, kid comes in a few days of fever, Maybe they've got, you know, really significant abdominal pain. That's the other thing, too, that these patients show up with pretty decent abdominal pain. I mean, we've had kids go to the OR for a possible appendicitis. And maybe that triggers you to do labs. Maybe it's an ill-appearing child. Maybe it's they've been to your office for the third time in a row with persistent fever. If that CRP is high, that's kind of the first phase. So we say to the ED docs, consider getting a CBC with a diff. And preferably, if you can get a manual diff to look for atypical lymph for like EBV and get a CRP and maybe get a chem panel. So you're trying to see if this kid's hyponatremic, hypoalbuminemic. And if that's then the case, then that's where you go to your next phase of labs, right? And that's where you start to say, I'm going to do all the fancier stuff like the D-dimer, the ferritin, the fibrinogen, and I'm going to start to work this kid up a little bit further. So with the child that comes in, they may not be so sick appearing, but you bothered to do the labs. Something made you do those labs, I hope. So you have to pay attention to that CRP. Now, is is there, for you, just in general, is there a constellation of symptoms that you feel is most sensitive or specific for MSC in order to trigger some of these labs? I know you talked a little bit about some of the GI complaints and so forth. What, in your yeah. mind, is there is there a protocol, prototypical presentation for you? So I used to think so. <laughs> and and the more I learn about Missy, I mean, we have to keep in mind, this first came on the radar April 26th of this year. We're dealing with three months of data. So you think you know it, and then you'll hear somebody else's report about Missy patients. But I think that these patients do fall into certain kinds of categories. There's the GI category. There's the kid with abdominal pain that you're thinking, huh, does he have an appy? But it's really not right lower quadrant pain, you know, significant diarrhea where you're like, could this be IBD, you know, pretty GI wise, sick wise. Then there's the Kawasaki like patients that have the fever or the rash or the red eyes. And so they, they may have a KD like picture that motivates you to pursue something further. The other group is actually things like neurological involvement which is becoming more apparent now, where there may be ataxia, there may be confusion, there may be significant headaches. And so there may even be focal neurological findings in some of these patients as well. So it is quite varied, but I think that when you see that in the context of fever and you start doing some general labs and you start seeing high inflammation, that's when the light bulb uh, should be going off. So we'll say that, you know, he looked okay in clinic and the pediatrician had him go home and told him to call with any, if anything happened, but the next day he's not looking as well. His father brings him to the emergency department because he started developing this rash on the residence exam down in the ED. He has this conjunctivitis, some erythema, some induration of the hands. The rash is polymorphic and he has a little bit of a red tongue. His labs are notable for an ESR of 84 and a CRP of 24. 
They make the decision down in the ED to admit him to the inpatient service, kind of like we talked about. His rapid COVID-19 test is negative for PCR, and then his IgM is also negative too, but then his IgG antibody eventually returns positive for COVID-19. Given this kind of constellation of symptoms, what specifically allows you to make that diagnosis of MISC, and is, is what our patient is experiencing kind of enough? This is where it, it, you get a lot of input from different um, consultants. Right, so this is this is definitely the team sport of medicine right now. It's in pediatrics, so most places, and I think this is actually appropriate, are involving a number of different consultants to weigh in and figure out. I wouldn't say that MISI is a diagnosis of exclusion, but I would say that you need to be thoughtful about the differential and to make sure that you're not missing anything else that's treatable. So putting on my ID hat, one of my questions would be, could this be toxic shock in this kid, right? Because you've got the conjunctival injection, you've got the strawberry tongue, you know, is there any risk factor there, any portal of entry, anything else that would make you worried about toxic shock? Then I'm going to put on my Kawasaki hat and I'm going to ask you, I know he's 15, but we see KD even in, you know, young adults. So could this be that? And could this be Kawasaki? And if it's, you know, if he's, if he's has any hemodynamic instability, could this be KD shock syndrome, um, which we do see in some patients. And I think there are things that you can do in working up a patient like this. And there's actually a bifurcation, I would say. And what I would say is if this patient comes in and they are hemodynamically unstable, then you're willing to be wrong, right? And you're going to do whatever is best for that patient. So you're probably going to put them on antibiotics, give them fluids, go ahead and treat them as MIS-C with there's any exposure that's been known ever that you're worried about, right? And so you're going to go ahead and get all those serologies that all your consultants are going to ask you for before you slam them with two grams per kilo of IVIG. But you're willing to say, you know what, maybe I gave him IVIG and he didn't need it, right? So, but if he's hemodynamically stable then you've got a little bit more time, not a ton, but you've got some more time to get your ID doc to come in and evaluate for toxic shock and KD and get your rheumatologist to come in and to say, you know, is there, does he have, you know, some other rheumatologic vasculitity that's causing him to have conjunctival injection in the whole picture. And so then, so that's the first part of it. The second part is the workup that's involved. And so not all of these patients have coronary artery or even left ventricular diastolic or systolic dysfunction, but the ones that get into trouble do. Cardiovascular workup in these patients can actually be quite helpful for you to understand not only the diagnosis, but the severity of illness in some of these patients as well. This is helpful. I think as far as the next step and next labs would be good, especially in this patient, I think it is a Kawasaki phenotype or Tachitschot phenotype. But my understanding is that the workup, um, looking for a different system, is, is consistent across whether it's a neurological GI or Kawasaki type phenotype. So what would the yeah what would the next steps be if this is a patient that we're admitting to our service, right? And the nurse calls and says, "Hey, the admission orders aren't in. Can you put in some labs real quick?" Right, exactly. Uh, yeah. So this is where you hopefully have thought about this and already have a lab order set and you've got your pathway right. If not, call me because we've got ours and everybody in town, everybody around the world has, has their own. But there is some labs that are on everybody's list, right? So they're mostly inflammatory markers. So, you know, you've already got your CBC and your CMP and your, your CRP and your SED rate. But now you're going to go on, you're going to get your ferritin and your fibrinogen 
You're going to maybe get um, an LDH. You'll go ahead and and check, as you guys mentioned, the SARS-CoV-2 antibodies, at least IgG, but if you've got IgM capability as well. And then you're going to wait for everybody else to give their input as to all the blood they want to get as well for their diseases in the rheumatologic and infectious world. But in the end, to diagnose someone with MIS-C, it's that clinical picture in combination with the laboratory findings. So most of these kids, in addition to having an anemia and a thrombocytopenia for some of them, you'll, in addition to the elevated CRP, you may or may not have a high SED rate. It, remember that if your platelet count is low and you have a consumptive coagulopathy going on, your ESR can't mount. It can't be elevated. So your SED rate may actually be low. So don't be thrown off by that. But then you'll see a high ferritin, a high fibrinogen. In some patients, if they're, some of these patients actually are quite tachycardic, even in the absence of fever. And that is coming in part from the, what we think is myocardial strain, which may be reflected in a a BNP that's out of proportion to your troponin. So they're not really suffering ischemia, right? It's not like their myocardium's dying and they're releasing stuff and the troponin's elevated, but their BNP, it's like their heart's in shock and the myocardium's in shock. So when you see an elevated BNP and a high CRP in, you know, nowadays, that's kind of another hallmark for this disease is that elevated BNP as well. And then you go on to get some diagnostic tests like an echo. So the super important thing for all of us to remember is that echo, depending on where you're at, some may actually check function, but they won't look at the coronaries. And so it's really important when you ask for that first echo that you ask for a complete echo. And for some places, that means saying, I want you to look for what you'd look for in Kawasaki disease. And I want your cardiologist to look for the Z scores and to tell you not only the function, but also what the coronaries look like. And what's pathognomonic of this disease is, especially in the children that are hemodynamically unstable, is that they've got left ventricular systolic dysfunction and their ejection fraction is low. And so their heart is stunned and the pump just can't work. So they're essentially in cardiogenic shock. There may also be some uh, component of vasogenic shock in these patients so that they may need some cardiovascular support in that direction. But many of these children actually, if they're that sick and end up in the unit, their cardiovascular dysfunction is from cardiogenic shock. I'm I'm going to need a little refresher on Kawasaki, I, I feel, because definitely <laughs> there's, you know, when we're looking at the Kawasaki phenotype, you know, I'm... And trying to remember, there's quite a bit of coronary stuff going on with that. What's a good differentiator between the two? Yeah. So in Kawasaki disease, the main thing is to look at the coronary arteries. And that's why I say when you talk to your cardiologist, they say, well, what, what are you looking for in the echo? You want to make sure that you're looking closely at the coronary arteries, which sometimes could be hard in an older kid because they may not have the best echo windows, right, in the bigger kids. But then you also want them to really look at the cardiovascular function, at the left ventricular systolic and diastolic function. So that's that's the main thing to look at. The question of KD in comparison to MIS-C is something that, you know, we're, we're really starting to get a handle on it now with more information about MIS-C. So Kawasaki disease, in addition to it more affecting the coronaries than the systolic function in children, 
There's also a little bit of difference in terms of how these patients present. So they generally in KD, although we see diarrhea, we don't see as significant abdominal pain as we do in some MISC patients. So that kind of acute abdomen picture, we don't usually see that in Kawasaki disease. The other thing as well in KD that's different is that the labs tend to be a little bit different. So the CRP can be high, but it won't be a sky high. If you're looking at the cardiovascular labs in terms of the BNP, it won't be as affected either. And so it's, we still have a lot, I mean, we have to remember, we don't know the pathophysiology of MIS-C. So we really don't know if it's along the spectrum of Kawasaki disease, like is it at all related to KD in some way? Is there some overlap there that even though they're two different diseases, there's some overlap in the pathophysiology? And that's why some of the MIS-C patients show up with some of these, what we're calling KD signs. So there's still, I think, a lot of science to be done to figure out how these two diseases are similar and where they diverge. And as part of this initial diagnosis, my understanding is that you do have to have a certain number of systems that are involved. And so we're talking about a cardiac involvement, either with the coronary artery aneurysms or this shock. Although it sounds like the it's not so much like a myocarditis because the troponin is not elevated, but yeah. a little but but what but what other systems might we see presented and when can we say that it meets criteria for a multi-system inflammatory system? As the name suggests in terms of multi-system, that you have to have at least two systems involved. And that's a bit tricky. But the systems are generally dermatologic mucocutaneous. That's one, right? So a lot of the KD-like stuff and the skin findings fall in there. Then you've got the GI system, which can be everything from an acute abdomen, like it looks like an acute abdomen, to more nausea, vomiting, diarrhea. You've got the neurological system where kids can present with confusion and even focal neurologic findings and seizures in some cases. And then from there, I mean, usually the renal system, it not as involved, gratefully. What's interesting is that the system that's actually spared in MIS-C are the lungs. So that's kind of, people always say, so how do you know if we're not dealing with like the inflammation of acute COVID-19 illness, right? The ARDS thing. And it's really that there's the lung involvement in MIS-C is absent. I mean, maybe maybe some of these kids need to get intubated because what happens is that they come in hypotensive and they get a lot of fluids. But if you're in cardiogenic shock, you overload the system and it backs up to your lungs. So you end up with pleural effusions and overload there. So you're, you're intubated for, for respiratory need, but it's because your heart, the pump can't keep up. But in fact, for MIS-C, the lungs are surprisingly not involved. So there can be a number of systems, but, but the lungs are spared in most cases. If you're diagnosed with acute COVID-19, does that rule out MIS-C then? It's hard to have both at the same time because even though some MIS-C patients have been PCR positive for SARS-CoV-2, MIS-C is a post-infectious inflammatory syndrome. You had either your COVID-19 illness or you were exposed to it and you didn't even know that you were exposed to it. You form an inflammatory process, and we think what ends up coming out at the other end a month later is MIS-C. So you can still be PCR positive, and as we know, you can be PCR positive for a long time, but it doesn't mean that you've got acute, doesn't mean that you've got acute viral illness that's ongoing at the same time. So that's why we really think of it as post-infectious. 
and the time course is about four weeks. Is that it's about, yeah, it's about four weeks is what generally people are seeing. The hard part is honestly, that when you're in a COVID-19 endemic region, you don't know when these kids were exposed. It's hard to tell as to when exactly that exposure happens. Some have a very clear story. There have been patients that clearly, especially some of the older, like the older teenagers, had the respiratory illness. They're like, oh, I didn't get tested, but everybody around me got tested and they all were positive. And then like a month later, they're coming in. And then there's the child where the kid wasn't sick, but they live in a highly endemic region and everybody around them was testing positive. And that was their exposure. What is the typical age demographic? We talked about this being a little bit older for Kawasaki's. Is there a specific age range where we are really focused on this is likely to be MISC? I wish the answer were yes. <laughs> I can give you the median age. The median age is about eight or so, somewhere between eight to 10 is what most studies have shown. And that does help you when you look at the median age of Kawasaki disease if you're trying to figure out between those two. The problem is that we've had Missy kids that are younger and we've had Kawasaki kids that are older. But the, the reality is that most of these children with Missy are anywhere between like seven, 10 years of age into their teenage years. And then what we don't know actually for the MedPeds people that are listening is how many adults. So we've heard of some young adults that are showing up with a syndrome that's pretty similar. And I wonder, I really wonder as to how many adults we have out there. You know, all this post-COVID stuff that people are talking about, like how much of that is Miss C? I have a feeling that as that divide in that wall that exists between pediatrics and medicine falls, I mean, we all start to read each other's literature, you know, there's going to be some medicine, some internal medicine doctor out there going, gosh, that sounds just like the adult that I just took care of that had COVID-19 uh, illness a month ago. And I, I actually think this is going to, going to end up happening long-term for a lot of these patients. You know, all these adults that are walking around saying, I felt kind of crummy for weeks on end. Maybe this is what's going on. I don't know. Yeah. I, Justin shared an article with us before we went on air from The Lancet about one of those patients, but it was, it was really interesting because a few days before that, my co-resident, we were working at the adult hospital and she was like, I think I have a patient who has like, am I Miss C? But they're like an adult. They're like 30, but they had COVID four weeks ago. And we had Perfect actually gotten them transferred from the ICU to manage them after they were infectious. So yeah, no, I, I totally agree with that. Uh, we're going to release this episode on the pediatric podcast. And then four weeks later, when all the adults are having MISC, we'll release it for the internal medicine <laughs> audience. Sounds like perfect timing. And maybe they'll go, oh, we learned something from the pediatricians. Yeah. <laughs> but we'd have to rename it like Miss A or something like that, right? Right. So that was the other thing, too, that came up initially. You know, so, you know, in terms of the name, I mean, why do we make it kid specific? I was basically saying initially, like, maybe we should call it like, pediatric and adult, and then it becomes PMs or I, I don't know. <laughs> mm. So let's say I'm a resident, I'm imagining my resident life. And, uh, and once I get my labs in for my nurses to, to make sure every the whole team's happy, who do I need to call for this patient mm. to do stuff overnight in terms yeah. of treatment? Do I call my infectious disease doctor? Do I call my rheumatologist? Obviously, it may be a little institution specific, but who do I need to call, get on board, how quickly? And then what are some of the decisions I guess we're looking at making potentially overnight? Let's say it's like 5 p.m. and I really, I really want to stop not bothering people too late at night. Yeah. So this is pretty institution specific. 
And hopefully this discussion has happened at an institutional level, because otherwise you're in for quite a riot of calling people. <laughs> I think the general, the general party line is that most people that are considering this disease want to make sure that there's nothing else going on that needs to be addressed first or that is a different that is a different disease and maybe it isn't miss c and so i think that this is where people want to weigh in and so if you've got a slam dunk kid that looks like it because he's got a bunch of clinical signs acute abdominal pain crp through the roof his bnp is high you did an echo you know his his ejection fraction isn't so great his left ventricular systolic function isn't doing so hot i think that maybe you'll get away with like one call that night. <laughs> but if you're on the floor, I think a lot of these patients get a little bit of a workup from a different number of consultants. And that is actually seen very clearly across the US when you ask people, so what'd you treat them with? And it really depends on, so who'd you call? Hmm. And so depending on the consultant that you call, they may have, we've kind of really settled into either IVIG or, or low-dose steroids first in most of these kids. But who, who gets what is really driven by which consultant sees them or what people feel comfortable with at that institution. So if you're in the ICU and this kid is hemodynamically unstable, then your intensivists are driving the bus and they're going to certainly call a bunch of consultants, but they're going to say, you know, safety first, this kid we need to, to treat urgently. And in, in many of those cases, then uh, they end up reaching for not only one, but usually two treatments initially in most cases. Yeah. I have a question regarding that IVIG decision, because we've had a couple at CashLack, we've had a couple patients come in. And I think after this episode, we're going to have a full protocol. But one of the decisions was this, do we give IVIG or not? In one particular case, it was a relatively mild presentation. They opted to not treat because of the appropriate side effects of IVIG that were concerning. But there was also a discussion that no specialist felt super confident on is, why are we giving the IVIG? Is it to <laughs> decrease the Are we just trying to treat what's in front of us? Or are we preventing the coronary artery aneurysms later that yep. we sometimes see in Kawasaki, but have no idea? Can we, can you talk about not just what those decisions are, but what what's kind of guiding the decision-making and why are we why would maybe we consider IVIG versus one of the other anti-cytokine treatments? Or So this is, it's really interesting to see how this disease and its treatment has evolved because it happened super fast because there were kids that were super sick. And the decisions were made, I think, based on what people were clinically seeing, right? So you fall back on in medicine what it's familiar to you. And in the absence of knowing anything about the pathophysiology about this disease, I think you end up treating what you're seeing in front of you. So, you know, when these kids come in looking like Kawasaki disease, the cool thing is we know how IVIG works in Kawasaki disease. It actually boosts your normal immune system. It boosts your T regulatory cells and it increases not only the number, but the function of those cells. And so that's an, a, a natural boost for your you know, innate anti-inflammatory, what's actually adaptive anti-inflammatory response that you have in your immune system, which is great, but that's how we know it works in Kawasaki disease. But that's what people reached for because that's the, what it was looking like. So 
part of this is that if you have a child that's got coronary artery abnormalities, and kind of the scary thing is that some of these patients may not have coronary artery abnormalities initially, but then they do like a week or two later. So that's why I think a lot of people have continued to use IVIG because it's the only drug, albeit it's a human blood product. It's not easy to get. It's not available worldwide and it has side effects and it's super expensive. It also is the only treatment that's been shown again in Kawasaki disease to prevent the progression of coronary artery aneurysms. So people reached for that medication because of what we know and the, the vast experience with it in a different disease. And that's kind of how decisions were made for Miss C. So then you go on to say, you know, who should be treated, I think is really an important question. So it's certainly been well described that there are patients that are seen that by the time you actually get some consultants to see them in the morning, they're a febrile, their CRP is coming down. Maybe it was just like, maybe it was 10, but now it's like five and they're a febrile and all that stuff that you had is kind of melting away. And I think that a lot of people in the absence of, you know, if their echo is normal and things are getting better, I think there are a number of, you know, doesn't matter whether it's the hospitalist, the consultants, whoever would vote to maybe not even treat that patient. So I, I really don't know what the right answer is because again, some of these patients end up with coronary artery damage, although it's few. And I, you know, I don't know if that's the right answer or not. I think it, we still, we desperately need studies in the treatment um, area. If this is going to be around for a while, which I unfortunately think it is, we need to have some trials to figure out what the right treatment course is. So it, it's hard to know it, with some of these patients as to whether A, you should even treat, and then B, what you're going to treat with. Most people are reaching for IVIG, given what we just talked about. I think it's also valid to consider, in, especially in some resource-limited settings where they may not have IVIG, about low-dose steroids and what the, what the role is there as initial therapy. But I think that where it gets super tricky is where you've given IVIG and the fever comes back, right? And you continue to have a recrudescence of fever. And that's where, depending on where you're at, it depends on what you end up giving that kid. <laughs> now, will you trend like other labs too as you're watching these? So, I mean, are you are you trending your inflammatory markers? Are you repeating an echo in a, in a week? What what are, what are we doing as we're following these patients as they progress? Right. So serial labs are definitely important. I think you decide what you're going to follow based on how sick the patient is. Think of the patients on the medical surgical floor. You don't have to get everything every day and you're going to trend whatever's been abnormal. But again, I think something like the CRP is probably one of the most helpful labs um, that you're going to get. Certainly if the BNP or troponin have been abnormal, those are going to get trended. So I think that the labs are helpful. The echo it, you may just be one and done initially for the inpatient setting. We'll get to the outpatient setting later. For the inpatient setting, you may just be one and done. That said, if there's anything abnormal on the echo, then it's actually recommended to do an echo every 48 hours and to also consider doing an EKG every 48 hours. So you're just kind of serially going to be following to see what is evolving there and to make sure that things are getting better from the cardiac standpoint, if there's cardiovascular involvement. 
And is that adapted from Kawasaki's too, or is that for MISC or MISC in particular? So there's actually the American College of Rheumatology put together a task force that I was part of that was a multidisciplinary task force of pediatric rheumatologists, infectious disease, cardiologists. Um, and so this is all specifically from Miss C. Of course, you, we're taking it from what we know in KD, but I think it's just putting on your hat of, you know, echo's not normal. If the, if the echo's not normal, let's go ahead and follow that up. And the frequency there has been suggested by the some pediatric cardiologists. Again, in the absence of any other further information about this disease, it is probably extrapolated in part from other diseases where things are abnormal as well, including Kawasaki disease. But there, there's actually guidelines now from ACR that just got published a couple of days ago. I shouldn't say guidelines, I should say guidance that got published through ACR to help uh, make some clinical decisions for, for providers. Awesome. We're sponsored by Pediatrics On Call, the new podcast from the American Academy of Pediatrics. Each week, hear the latest news on children's health with advice and tips for doctors and parents alike. Subscribe to Pediatrics On Call and visit aap.org slash on call. And we've been talking a little bit about following up the cardiac evolution of the disease. We talked about LDH a little bit earlier and other thrombocytopenia. So are there other complications of this disease that we need to be following up if the patient's on the floor? Do we need to be worried about them going to the ICU later on? So one of the main concerns and this is actually usually pre-treatment. So as you're working the patient up and you're not quite sure is it missy or not, we usually have those patients on a monitor. And I think it's, it's well described that some of the kids can really rapidly progressing and end up being transferred from the regular medical floor over to the ICU if their cardiovascular disease is progressing. That's kind of what gets you into trouble. So that's the main thing that causes kids to get transferred from the medical surgical floor over to the ICU is that suddenly, you know, you had a kid who was compensated on the floor and was sort of not doing great, but everybody was trying to figure out what was going on. And then suddenly their pump just doesn't function well enough and they're hypotensive and they're in cardiogenic shock. In terms of the other things that can evolve, it's, it's actually relatively infrequent to have, I think, some of the other presenting things evolve to the point. Um, it may be that your GI disease is worse. There, these kids can get colitis, like a pancolitis. And so, again, in the absence of an anti-inflammatory therapy being initiated, maybe that could progress and you could get more of an acute abdomen picture. And they can actually get taken to the OR being to, for concerns of an acute abdomen. So I think any of these initial presenting signs can worsen in the absence of treating them. Once you start treating the patient, it, it's actually quite remarkable the turnaround that some of these patients have. And while they can be refractory to initial therapy, meaning that they're, you, know, you treat them, their fever goes away, but then their fever gets worse, or their cardiovascular disease seems to progress, but they're, you know, Part of it, they're doing okay, but maybe their function is doing a little bit worse, but they're doing okay because they're being supported in the ICU, you know, with cardiovascular support. So there are certain triggers that then say, okay, maybe we treat them with IVIG, but now we got to move on to something else. 
because they're worsening either from an inflammatory standpoint or from a cardiovascular standpoint. That's kind of usually what happens. And so for that next step, are you often pulling like a anakinra or another delizumab? Because I will say the other part of our uh, admission workup for a couple of these patients was the IL-1 and IL-6 levels that came back three weeks later. They were very elevated and I had no idea how to interpret them or what to do with them. I'm not sure that we need them, although I would love to know if we do. But is the next step another round of IBIG or is there some promise for these anti-inflammatory meds? Right. So I didn't mention IL-1 and IL-6 initially because I personally don't find them to be all that useful. And I think they're reflective of the ongoing inflammation. One of the stuff that that I do in our research and we're trying to understand the pathophysiology of MIS-C is that we're seeing that that the IL-1 levels are very elevated. So the inflammasome is clearly, you know, a key player here that IL-6 is involved. But I don't know if that's the chicken or the egg. If you trend those, let's say that you didn't have to wait three weeks and you got them back the next day, like your CRP, you would trend them and you'll see that they'll get better. So I'm not sure they're really all that better than a CRP. And I'm not sure that a high IL-6 level means that you need to go straight to tozolizumab. So in terms of the next line of therapy, it's a laundry list. And it's coming from the people and the consultants that see these patients. So if you're a rheumatologist, maybe you're more comfortable with steroids, low-dose steroids. You may even be more comfortable with like higher doses of steroids, although the pulse steroids, you know, like 30 mg per kg have been tried and it's been, you know, really clear evidence that those are actually, you suffer a lot of side effects without a lot of help. So most people will start with like two megs per kg of steroids, sometimes a little bit higher in the much sicker patients. So that may be your drug of choice, right? If you're a Kawasakiologist and you use steroids for the coronary arteries, like it's done in many parts of the country, maybe you'll go to steroids for that. You know, if you're trained and use more infliximab, like I do in Kawasaki disease, then a single dose of infliximab in a patient that you know, has been evaluated and I don't think has a bacterial infection, but maybe has coronary artery involvement, I would feel really comfortable in giving them 10 milligrams per kilo of infliximab. And that's been used by some centers quite a bit, and they've had some really good success uh, with it. Same with steroids. And then there's antikinra, which is, you know, can is is the darling of many different consultants. And again, is, you know, IL-1 blockade. Yeah, absolutely. IL-1 levels are super high on these patients. And you know, you can go ahead and give them anakinra as well. And then tocilizumab's out there also as well. I think it's been used more in the hyperinflammatory syndrome of adults post-COVID-19 acute ARDS with some success, but also some caution in terms of like an increased rate of bacterial infections. So I think that they're all there. They're just all kind of probably maybe similar, maybe not. I don't know. We need a trial to figure that out. And But they've all have certain pathways that we think are being dampened. So I think the only one that I would caution against is a second dose of IVIG. And I say that because we don't know the pathophysiology of this disease. And I do know that we have quite a bit of hemolytic anemia, but this is actually not, this may not be true all, you know, nationwide. It turns out that at least in Kawasaki disease, if you give more than one dose of IVIG, depending on where you're at, you actually increase the risk of hemolytic anemia because there's a lot of anti-A and anti-B. So if your patient is an A-positive patient, 
then you run the risk of giving them another disease on top of Miss C and maybe hemolytic anemia. So I think a second IVIG is fallen a bit out of favor at some sites. And I think that people are saying, well, let's go ahead and give a different anti-inflammatory. The other caution to speak about is when do you give IVIG and should it be the first thing that you reach for? And in the ICU setting, in a patient in cardiogenic shock, two grams per kilo of IVIG is quite a bit of fluid. And, and maybe you've already sort of fluid overloaded this patient because all kinds of scenarios, you know, you thought they were, well, you, they were hypotensive and you thought they were in vasogenic shock. You know, you took them to the OR to uh, check for an acute appendicitis and they got fluids in the OR. So there's a lot of reasons why you can fluid overload somebody. And so then now you've got this patient that you want to give them IVIG, but maybe you don't want to give it over 12 hours. Maybe you want to be a little, give it over more spread out of time. So some people that have been dealing with this more in the ICU have been doing a different anti-inflammatory first. Maybe they're reaching for steroids or infliximab or anakinra first. And then they're kind of giving IVIG on the heels of that, but over, you know, maybe you're giving one gram per kilo over a couple of days, or sorry, two grams per kilo total, but one gram per kilo one day and then one gram per kilo the next day so that you don't suffer the consequences of the fluid as much. I feel so grateful that we have specialists to ask their favorite anti-inflammatory because if anyone asked me, I would probably have gone with medium dose ibuprofen. (laughs) <laughs> and so I think this is a better, I think this is a better system. I think this teamwork thing is really going to help. Yeah. So I have uh, sort of a, a double question as we move on to outpatient therapy. So what, what is the expected prognosis for most of these kids who are diagnosed with Miss C and what, what are the types of criteria we're looking at to discharge them so that they can be seen at home? So gratefully, most of these children do really well. And I think the long-term consequences are still to be determined. And we'll get to that in a minute with the outpatient follow-up. But gratefully, most of these kids in the acute setting, they receive their anti-inflammatories. They have a relatively quick turnaround for most of the kids. And you're able to, to send them home relatively quickly. So to get them out the door, they don't have to be back to 100%. But you have to make sure that certain criteria are met. First of all, they have to be afebrile, and they have to be afebrile, I would say, for at least 24 hours. A fever to me is anything above 38 degrees Celsius, although I'll tell you that if the kid is 37.9, I ain't sending them home because they're going to get their IV out, they're going to get their IV out, walk to the parking lot, mom's going to be worried about a fever, and they're going to come back and wait 12 hours for bed. So you want to make sure that they're truly afebrile, that they've defervesced. And then the rest of it's determined by what was it that they presented with? If they had all the KD-like signs, have those started to resolve? If they presented, God forbid, in cardiogenic shock, what is their cardiac function like, right? So you followed their echoes and you know now you're seeing that their cardiovascular function has improved and that they don't need any more cardiovascular support, that any EKG, because there can be arrhythmias also associated with this disease, that there is no concerning arrhythmia in these patients. And if there was any acute neurological findings, that those have, they may not be completely back to baseline, but that those have also improved as well. Moving on to the outpatient follow-up, which I think is a really important key thing to wrap up with, is that all these kids need to be seen in a couple of weeks after discharge. And so two weeks and then six weeks after discharge. And they need an echo 
at both of those visits, a complete echo that looks at their coronaries as well as their function. They need an EKG during both of those visits. And if they at all at any point had any arrhythmia, any repolarization issues on their EKG, they should get a Holter. On the kids that are more affected, that have had issues with cardiovascular dysfunction, they may need a stress echo to be done in the outpatient setting. So at the very least, they're going to need some kind of cardiovascular follow-up. And my plea to everyone that's out there is please make it as easy as possible for your families when you send them home. Make sure they have one, not five, physicians to call, right? that they know who to call, that someone's driving the bus on this, and that when they come back to outpatient clinic, hopefully they have one visit and not five visits. So what we've done at our institution is we're lucky enough to have a Kawasaki clinic. And so, and we, we hope I'm an infectious disease doctor, but my Kawasaki clinic is hosted in cardiology. And so those patients I saw in the hospital, and then I will see them in the outpatient setting. And so the rheumatologist comes to our clinic and sees them there. We've actually even had the hospitalists that saw them in the inpatient setting come and follow them up. Yeah. They're That's curious. Cool. They want to really cool. know great. what's going on. Right. You know, they wanted, they got the ED doc that wants to know what the follow-up is. So, you know, come like 12 med students in the room. Sure. You know, well, you know, with all the COVID stuff going on, but you know, it's like a revolving door. It's like now the next consultant that will be coming in now through door number one, you know? And so then, and so we've had all these subspecialists, we say, Hey, they're coming in. They're going to be here for five hours, getting their echo, their EKG, their holter, blah, 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 blah. So you want to come down, you can come down and see them with us. And so that makes it really easy on the family. And I know that that may not be the setup at a different places, but I just really ask you guys to just for a moment, just think about how we can make this easier for the families. And that's a really, it's a really easy setup for the families. Yeah. So at the end of every episode, we like to sum it up with kind of what are your big takeaways for, for listeners, for everybody out there? Okay. So I think it's a couple things. First of all, all of pediatric medicine existed before Miss C. So not everything out there right now is Miss C. That being said, when you're thinking about it, uh, it's important to be stepwise in the evaluation of these patients. In terms of a child that you're going to do labs on, making sure you're ordering that CBC and that CRP and that SED rate, maybe that chem panel, and then going on to the next phase of ordering tests if those are um, significantly elevated. I think it's also important not to jump to conclusions, again, to think about other illnesses in the midst of this and to to really keep that team sport spirit <laughs> about Missy and remember that it's multidisciplinary and that we really need to just be thoughtful about what how we treat these patients and making sure that when they go home, they have the appropriate follow-up, that they have the appropriate safety net. They know who to call for questions. It's not going to be their general pediatrician. And, and, and you know, and to, to know that there's people out there that they can call with questions and that they can uh, then follow up with the right consultants to figure out what to do long-term, what the long-term consequences are. You know, one thing maybe I should mention this is, is we didn't, we didn't talk at all about race. And, and I apologize, you know, I'm Latina. This should be like my number one, two, three priority. So our Latinx and our Black African-American communities are being just decimated by COVID-19. And those same groups 
have access issues. And unfortunately, there are MIS-C patients that I know are out there that are not being diagnosed because of lack of access and, and all those other things that plague our, our communities that are highly affected by COVID-19. So this is a disease of, of those with less resources and MIS-C is exactly the same thing as well. So I don't want that to be forgotten in this. Thank, Thank you. you for bringing that up. Yeah, I apologize. I didn't bring that up earlier. No, that was on our script. And yeah. I, I overlooked it in the, as, as we were winding down. To end, are there any things that you would like to plug or anything resource or cool stuff out there that you think listeners should should check out? Uh, so the plug I always give, it, it, you know, it's just like, don't forget about Kawasaki disease. That's my plug that I always give, you know, because people forget about that disease when Missy goes away, right? It'll, you know, when COVID-19, when we, when we get that magical vaccine and we all go out to being able to hang out at the bar, Kawasaki disease is still going to be out there. So, so think about that. And I think the other, the other piece I would just say is that tell a friend. So I, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not a big social media person. Cause I just, I mean, like I'm already 300 emails behind today, but I do hope that for those of you out there that are take a minute to just let a friend know about whether it's Missy or Kawasaki disease or whatever of these, you know, people are calling them rare diseases. But honestly, if you don't think about this stuff, you're not going to diagnose it. So I think it's super important that, you know, at that next Zoom cocktail party that you're at with your friends, hey, I heard about this cool new illness so that people can kind of help. Because honestly, things like Missy and Kawasaki disease, you don't need to be a physician to diagnose this stuff, right? So you know, if we get KD diagnoses all the time on Facebook and it's because a, mo- a desperate mother posted pictures of her sick child because she's been told three times this kid has a viral illness and doesn't have anything else. And so I have a feeling this exact same thing is happening with Miss C. You know, the only thing I think appropriate about that name is that it's probably missed. <laughs> well, thank you so much for spending your evening with us. We really appreciate it. And I think all our listeners are going to really enjoy this. Yeah, and I'm glad that this microphone came in handy for something. Yeah, yeah it's super. This has been another episode of The Cribsiders. It's for the kids! Get show notes at thecribsiders.com slash podcasts and sign up for our mailing list at Knowledge Food Formula Feeds to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. We're committed to providing you with high-value, practice-changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or contact us at thecribsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to our producers for this episode, Dr. Nicholas Lee. Thanks, everyone, for joining us tonight or in their workout or cooking event. I've been Justin Lee Burke. I'm Nick Lee. And this has been Chris the Chew Man Chew. Thank you and good night. Hey, you've already listened to the entire episode. Now claim CME credit. Continuing education credit is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. VCU is accredited to provide continuing education to the entire healthcare team. Check it out at cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information and to claim your credit after listening to this episode.